Well, if you want to grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 16, that's where we'll be this morning. We are in this summer preaching series called Sent, Living the Mission of God. And so we've been looking at various uh, selections from the Apostle Paul and some others um, as they following the Pentecost event, spread Christianity throughout the world. And chapter 16 is interesting for a whole number of reasons. Uh, One is it's the first recorded account of Christianity anywhere in Europe. If you remember last week, they set uh, set to sea from Troas, crossed over the water, and came to land. And then in Philippi, Uh, the the church gets started here. It's also interesting because it gives us a cross-section of this first church in Europe. Um, The first three people mentioned in here who have a transformative encounter with Jesus are a rich uh, woman who's a businesswoman, a slave girl who's possessed of a demon, and a Gentile uh, jailer who works for the government uh, maintaining the jail. That is a diverse church, and it shows us an interesting picture. Another thing that's really interesting about this passage, uh, chapter 16, is this is the first time in Acts where Luke, the, the author, writes himself into the narrative. If you look very closely, there are a number of places where the pronouns change from they and them to we and us. So like back in 16, uh, in verse uh, tw- uh, 8, it says, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And then in verse 10, it says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So he stays with them until they get into Philippi. But then at the end of this section, it says, and they went. So Luke apparently jumped into the mission in Troas, went over to Philippi and stays there for a long time. It's not until chapter 20, verse 5, that he says we again. And it's when Paul on his third mission goes through Philippi, he picks Luke up again and goes on another mission together. But we've got Luke here giving a firsthand account now. He didn't have to research this one. He was there and saw what happened, which raises an interesting question. Why did he include these three encounters and not others? I think one of the reasons is he wanted to show that the gospel was for everyone. It's for all people. It was for Gentile. It was for Jew. It was for God-fear. It was for male, for female, for slave-free. It is for everyone. And I think he also wanted to show that the way one becomes a Christian is simply by believing in Jesus. It is not something you have to do any work other than accepting the gift. So we see this incredible picture here. Now, for the sake of time, I can only address one of these three this morning. So I picked the jailer, the Philippian jailer. And I, I want to I look at this account from the, the angle of testimony. And I hope as we do this, you'll consider what your testimony is if you are a Christian. And all testimonies have three important elements. One is, what was life like before And then how did the gospel come to you? How did you come to believe? And then what changed? What's it like now after you've come to faith? For for Lydia, the the businesswoman, she was already being drawn to God and was seeking him in prayer and was a God-fearer. And it says the Lord opened her heart to hear Paul's words. And then she uh, professed faith and brought them into her household and became the first house church, uh, um, I guess, landlord sort of for the first church in Europe. The, the slave girl had a demon in her that gave her the ability to tell fortunes and make money for her owners. But for whatever reason, she just kept crying out, these men can tell you the way to salvation. For days, she just dogged them and followed them around until Paul finally got irritated and in the name of Jesus cast the demon out. But it set her free. It set her free from that. And she was transformed. And I think we can assume she was part of that early church. 
But then the Philippian jailer, he's a little bit more interesting to me. Look at verse 30. This is an interesting question. In verse 30, it says, um, then he brought them out of the jail and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, in the account here, we don't have much of an interaction between him and Paul and Silas. What had happened was they were proclaiming the gospel in this city, and when they cast the demon out of that girl, her owners were upset because their chance to make money by her fortune-telling was clearly gone. They knew it right away. And so instead of saying, these guys have stolen my income source, they make up a charge about them uh, causing disruption to the city. And the magistrates totally neglect justice and just strip them bare and allow them to be beaten out in the public court or out in the public uh, courtyard area. So they're, they're bleeding. They, might, they were beaten with rods. I mean, it was bad. This might have been one of the three counts where Paul says he received the 30 or the 40 minus one lashes. I'm not sure, but it was bad enough that they had severe wounds. But what's interesting as we think about the jailer before is he was a harsh and cruel man. It's not unlikely to think that he had been in the military. It'd be a natural transition into civil service as a jailer. He would have the right skill set from the military to do that. But he didn't have to be cruel and harsh. But it says, if you backed up slightly, it says in verse 23, when they had inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And then in 24, it says, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they didn't tell the jailer to do this. They just said, keep him safely. The inner cell is worse. It's dark. It doesn't have good air circulation. There's no window to look out of. You're just in the middle of the jail, dark room. The stocks were cruel. And and I, I don't know why, as I've read this in the past, I've always pictured chains, but they weren't chains. They were stocks, which, you know, if you've ever gone and visited, like, Walt Disney World, there's a photo op, right, where you can put your head and hands through the wooden stocks, and there's a board, and then take picture like you've been locked up out in the public square. That's what stocks were. And to put their feet in the stocks meant that in the middle of this cell, there was a board that was fixed to the ground across the middle, and it had holes cut out for ankles. And they'd lift the top board off, and they would make them put both of their feet in there, and then close it down and lock them in there. So they're sitting on cold, hard ground, and if they're going to lay down and sleep, they have to lay down on their backs, which had just been tortured and were bleeding. So it's not surprising that they're not asleep at midnight, (laughs) because they're not going to sleep that night. They're up, and they're doing something really odd, at least odd to everybody in the jail. They are singing praises to God, and they are praying. And it says all of the jail was listening to them. Now, Paul is an opportunist. He's not going to miss any opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. And here they are, all locked up together. So Paul is praying. He's declaring God's glory. He's singing. I wonder what he was singing. You know, later, he writes a letter to the Philippian church while he's in another jail, this time in Rome. And in the Philippians uh, letter, chapter 2, is a very well-known, most, most suspect it's a hymn called the Christ hymn, the hymn of Christ. And you probably know it well. The reason they, they assume this is a hymn is because if you look at it in the Greek, not the English, it's actually, uh, the, it, the wording is put out like, like versified like as if it was a psalm or a song with with indentation it's not just a paragraph even in the original language and it's this it's these verses are set out like the psalm have this mind among yourselves which are yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm sure in Greek, set to music, it sounds a little smoother. But it is some kind of early hymn that the church, that circulated in the church. And I wonder if that's what they were singing. I'm sure they were singing psalms. I'm sure they were singing praises to God. Now, the thing about this is, um, it got everyone's attention. The jailer had never seen anything like this before. I'm sure he had been cruel to lots of people. But this was the first time that they didn't complain or retaliate or curse him. And here they were in the middle of the night in great pain and agony and suffering. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're praising God. They're giving thanks. So it got his attention. So this man is now paying attention with all the jail to what they're saying. So as they're praying, God, they, not only does the jailer see the power of the gospel in them and how they responded to their abuse, but then the power of God is present through the nature of the earthquake. The whole prison is shaken, doors are thrown open, stocks come off, chains come off, whatever. Everyone is now free physically. And the jailer, knowing that he is liable with his life to keep them safe and guarded, is going to take his own life. He pulls out his sword. And here, the Apostle Paul does something interesting. He keeps the prisoners in there, and he says, don't do it, we're all here. He stops this man, and the man is trembling at that moment with fear. He's just been in the midst of a divine earthquake. He's been extended mercy from two of his prisoners that he was cruel to, and he comes and falls at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? That's why he asked that question, because he realizes he didn't deserve Paul's treatment. He was mean to him, and then Paul didn't retaliate, and then Paul was kind to him in response. It was a picture of paying it forward, basically. Jesus did the exact same thing to Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? On the road to Damascus, as, as Paul was being cruel to the body of Christ, Christ comes and forgives him and gives him new life. And so, says to Paul, you're going to suffer many things for me. So, when this happened, he wasn't surprised. Now, let me pause here for a second and speak to you believers. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, what that says to us is, expect it to be hard. Don't think this is going to be an easy walk through the park. Life is hard, but God is good. God is good. And so, when it comes... Press into him, just like Paul and Silas did in jail. Press into him. Give him praise and glory. Sing songs. Yes, it's okay to be upset with suffering, but sing songs to him because you know where it's going. And that's what the world doesn't know. You know what's going to happen at the end of time. You know your salvation. That's secure. Belief in Jesus sets you free to go through suffering. Belief in Jesus sets you free if you're in stocks in jail. You can be free in Christ. And so I think it's an interesting picture. You've got these men who are locked in a jail and this jailer, and they're the free ones and he's the enslaved one. And when all the jail is thrown open, they offer freedom to him as well through belief in Christ. What must I do to be saved? 
believe in Jesus. That's it. Believe in Jesus. It's so simple, sometimes we struggle with it. We think, I have to do something. I have to work for this. I have to earn it. I have to pay back. Nothing. No. Believe in Jesus. That's it. So that's, that's how he comes to faith. And when he would tell his testimony later, he would describe this story and say, and they told me, believe in Jesus, and I did. So that's, that's how he met Christ. Now, what happened after? What's, what's the result? What's the next thing? Well, then he's full of joy. It says in verse 34, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So in the middle of the night, he, one, he cleans up their back. He cleans up the wounds and gives them some medical care. And then they baptize him. And I have to wonder, was it the same basin? I mean, really, he washed them and then they washed him. Physically for them, spiritually for him. And then he set food before them and they ate and they told the gospel to his entire household. See, the thing about this is, is it gets the attention of people around you when you exercise faith in the midst of hardship. You know, last month was the two-year anniversary of the murder in the church, Emmanuel AME Church up in Charleston. It was two years ago. It was, it was June of 2015. And that got international attention. You know, a white supremacist goes into a church and kills people in the midst of their Bible study. And they reacted by offering forgiveness. Their families said, I forgive you. It was so powerful. I, I didn't realize this, but one of the uh, NFL owners actually gave $100,000. He paid $10,000 for each of the nine victims' funerals and then gave $10,000 to the church to offset some of their costs. He was so moved by that church and that whole event. And what it did is it took something evil and it turned everyone's eyes on Jesus. How is it that they were able to forgive? The only way is because they've been forgiven by Christ. And so they were able to extend forgiveness to others. This gospel came into the whole household of this Philippian jailer, and then that whole town heard the gospel. I mean, it was just, it just keeps going. There's a redemptive aspect to everything for those of us who are in the hands of the Redeemer. So how powerful that is. Life after for him was full of joy. And then, of course, he has to take them back to the jail. We didn't read through the end of the story, but he has to take them back to the jail. And in the morning, the magistrates say, let those guys go. And Paul, in a very decisive leadership move, says, no, no, have them come and escort us out. We are Roman citizens, and what they did was illegal and wrong. And the reason he does that, I believe, is because he wants to protect the church from other abuses, because he's going to leave on his mission. He needs to set the record straight publicly and say to those magistrates, don't you dare do this. This was wrong. And they need to be threatened a little bit, because he could have, I'm sure he could have had their jobs as Roman citizens. He could have told on them, and they would have gotten in big trouble. So he makes them escort them out, and they say, please leave our city. We're sorry. We're sorry. We didn't, and they, they really backpedal. And then he leaves, but the church now, in the public eye, is at least in a stronger place because of that. So what do we do with this? Well, belief in Jesus does set you free. And if you are someone who is a seeker, someone who is curious about God, the way to get to that kind of joy is to come to Christ in prayer and to speak to him and invite him to be your Lord, to accept the gift. It's just, that's what you do to receive it. You pray and then you're baptized. That's what happened here. And then they experienced the joy of the Lord. And then they were, he was filled with a desire to serve and do good to those whom he had harmed. His life was changing dramatically. For those of us that are Christians, I want to encourage you to know your testimony 
And you can use it in terms of what it was like before, how did you hear the gospel, through whom? There's always some people involved because it's somebody declares the gospel to you or told you to read the Bible or whatever it was. And then what changed? What is different now? Peter will write in 1 Peter 3 that you should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you why you have hope. This is a helpful model. What was my life like before? How did I hear the gospel? And then what is it like after? Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer all would have different stories, and yet there would be similarities in those stories. They've been set free by believing in Jesus, and their life is different as a result. So thanks be to God for the gospel that is available to all, regardless of their station in life. It is for all people. It is for you and for me and for everyone. And may God's kingdom continue to expand as we tell this good story. Would you pray with me? Lord, again, I want to thank you for these amazing accounts that we have. I thank you for your servant, Luke, who at, I'm sure, great personal expense went on these mission trips and was so thorough in recording what happened. Lord, it is good news. And I pray this morning that you would let that, jo- that joy of salvation bubble up within each one of us. And for anyone here who has never professed faith in you, I pray that you'd give them the gift of new life that they would boldly pray and receive this gift. Help us all to be free by believing in Jesus. For I pray this in his name. Amen.